Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Let me be honest, when we launched The Axe Files a few weeks ago, I had no idea how it was going to go or how people would react. I just wanted to have some good conversations and share them with you. And uh, we've gotten off to a great start thanks to you. Today, I want to bring you another. If you're an American, you may not know the name Alastair Campbell, but if you're from Britain, you surely do. He's probably the best-known political strategist and commentator uh, in that country, having helped Tony Blair win three elections uh, as a prime minister of the country. But he's also a guy with an incredibly interesting background uh, and a very uh, gripping and riveting life story. And he's also the author of 11 books, including the newly released Winners and How They Succeed. Here's that conversation. Alistair Campbell, journalist, political strategist, author, sports nut. You've stolen my identity, and I'm very angry about it. Yeah, I've still got hair. Oh, God. You know, this is a podcast. They didn't know until this moment that I don't have hair. So now you've literally blown my cover. But um, I'm interested in um, in your... I know what my life's journey was. I'm interested in yours. Um, tell me how, in the first instance, you ended up as a journalist, I, I want to talk, by the way, about your your new book, mm-hmm. um, and we will do so uh, at length because it's fascinating. But I want to talk about you first. Mm-hmm. How did you How did you first enter journalism? I I actually can't remember, and I'll tell you why. I left university. I went to Cambridge. I did languages. I didn't like Cambridge. Um, that is when my kind of very heavy drinking started to kick in. And I that alone would qualify you as a journalist. At the time it did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I then kind of bummed around for a year or so. I, was, I worked in a casino. I was a busker. I worked in a light bulb factory. I did all sorts of kind of just, I don't know, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I'd always, been, I'd always loved writing. I'd always loved words. And we've got no journalism in my family at all. My father was a vet. And I applied for this training scheme. And there were, it was a Daily Mirror. I think there were 1,200 applicants for nine places. It was something like that. It was really kind of competitive. And I got onto that, and it meant I, I had two years in local papers down in the West Country, which is the best grounding anybody can have, in my view, still. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where I met Fiona, and we're still together. Um, and and that was it. And the minute I started being a journalist, I loved it. I think one of the one of the best things about being a journalist is you can just go up to anybody and start talking to them. And ninety nine times out of a hundred, they'll talk to you. Yeah. And they've all got a story. And if you're in a local paper, everybody's a story. Doesn't have to be fury over outrage over it can just be who they are and what they do and what they think and then I got into um the national the, the daily mirror I got in, I got to, started as a freelance worked in the mirror always wanted to work on the mirror uh, actually I said I remember the interview they said uh, which newspaper would you really like to work for and it was one of those moments where the answer was the mirror but I thought this, they, they thought I should say The Guardian. Right? Uh-huh. I just felt they were kind of Guardian people. So I said, well, obviously The Guardian. 
okay. And I could then realize I made a mistake. I said, no, that was bullshit. I really want to work for the Mirror. I worked for the Mirror. I then went into political political coverage. Uh, did by choice did you want to cover politics no it kind of started I, I, I wasn't that political at university I wasted my time at university I was just I was a bit of a yeah I told you we had parallel lives yeah I was drinking very heavily I, I was very anti the place I used to get in a lot of trouble a lot of fights all that sort of stuff I just had a huge chip on my shoulder I, 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 I'm not from a kind of remotely from a you know poor background but I came from a, a northern town my dad then had a really bad accident and he had to sell his practice and he, he joined the Ministry of Agriculture. We got moved to Leicester. I went to a school there that was a you know comprehensive school. I think I was the first person, first kid from my school to go to Oxbridge. Um, and I just got there and there were people like that. I did not know those sorts of people existed. <laughs> They're now running my country again, I have to say. Yes. Um, and I just got very, very chippy. So... I wasn't that political. If anything, I was slightly anarchic. Um, but I, when I got into the mirror, I, I was always... I realised that actually I was very political and that these views were quite left of centre. And then, so I wanted to do kind of what I would call social conscience type journalism. And then I wanted to do politics. And the Daily Mirror was the only paper that really supported the Labour Party. Still is. That's an interesting thing about Britain. I was over there, obviously. You yeah. and I worked a little bit together on this last campaign. The degree to which newspapers have political profiles yeah. is something that is not uh, the same well, here to, to that degree. You have it more for television. Yes. Television, we have the BBC. And even the even the Independent and Sky and these guys, they're, they're, kind of, they're less strident than your television. Whereas your, your newspapers tend to be very sober. And our newspapers, as you know full well, are, are pretty hysterical. Yeah. But the Daily Mirror then was... was I mean, here's the thing. When I started in, the, in, the, in Westminster for the Mirror, we had two journalists whose full-time job was just covering the debates in Parliament. <laughs> Even the broadsheets now have nobody. Yeah. Nobody. They have sketch writers who take the piss out of politicians. <laughs> so, but that was... And then I got very friendly with Neil Kinnock when he was leader of the Labour Party. And funny enough, Neil... You were covering him and you got friendly with him? I was totally open about it. Mm -hmm. I used to write it. I used to say... I'm really, not saying that... A, no, I know. But I know. that happens, you know. Absolutely. No, I got... I, I, in fact, he was part of the reason that I wanted to go and cover politics. And... Why? He's a charismatic fellow, right? He's... A, he's um, I'll tell you why, because... I sort of felt, talking to him, that there was a... There was a passion there and there were the things that really got him going were the things that got me going. And I think I reached a, I think it was around that time that I started to think that if you really want to make a difference, change things, just, you can do stuff in, in journalism, of course you can, but actually you've got to get involved. So I became, I had this hybrid phase where, to be absolutely frank, I, was, I wasn't really a proper journalist, not just because of what I was writing. But there was a period when I was I was ghosting Gordon Brown's column in the Daily Record, a Scottish newspaper. I was helping him and Tony and Neil with speeches, with strategies. And now my editor knew this and didn't mind, huh. because as you say, it's a much more partisan yeah. environment. So I then left the Mirror. I, this was a kind of big mistake that I made. I was headhunted by. A, newspaper, a new newspaper called Today, I was flattered into becoming the youngest news editor in Fleet Street. And I went to this paper, and I was way out of my depth. I was now drinking very heavily, and that's when I had a pretty bad breakdown and ended up hospitalised. And um, So I was, I was kind of out of the game for a while. And then the best thing that happened, though, was my former editor at The Mirror, who'd been really hacked off when I left, he phoned me up and he said, he literally said these words, I hear you've gone mad. I said, well, I'm in hospital. I'll give you that. And he said, well, listen to me. You didn't listen to me before. Listen to me now. He said, stay there as long as you have to. Take the money from today as long as you can. And when you fit, come back here. And that was a fantastic. Yeah, that's an extraordinary gesture. Yeah. Let he, me, he ended up editing my diaries. Oh, yeah, the Blair Diaries, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a, a, a great, great book. Yeah. 
Let, let me um, uh, let me stop you for a second and ask you about that period mm-hmm. because you've written uh, uh, the, the Happy Depressive and you, you've you've written extensively and spoken extensively about your experience, your uh, struggles with mental illness. Uh, I presume alcoholism was a way of self-medicating yeah. to deal with that. Um, uh, how? First of all, what, what do you think? Um, uh, what What was the precipitant for all of that? And and how were you dealt? How obviously your old boss called you and brought you back. Mm-hmm. Um, but how much of a stigma did you feel? Because it was quite public, right? That you yeah you were struggling. Um, it's funny. I mean, I was when when I had the breakdown. The thing is that in the build-up to it, which went on for quite some time, that thing where when people are worried about you, you do have this thing where you think that they're the ones with the problem. So you're not really conscious of it. Um, so my parents were worried. Fiona was really worried. Your partner. Yeah. Um, Did the, you have kids at the time? No, mm-hmm. no. But that's the best thing is that a year later we had our first kid. Um, but so so in the in the build-up to it, I suspect that I'd always had depression. But like you say, I think I drank a lot. And, I, and actually, if you just said to most people, oh, he's a he's the life and soul of the party. He's going to be there, the last to fall down. And he makes you laugh and he laughs. And So I wasn't really conscious of it. And when the breakdown happened... What happened? Oh, it, it was... Again, it's just extraordinary how politics comes into it. All of it. So I go to this newspaper and... The minute I walked through the door, I knew it was a mistake. They just weren't my sort of people. This guy was, he didn't want trade unions. He was just doing it for ego. And so I'm there, I'm the youngest news editor, blah, blah, blah. But I just didn't really want to be there, but I didn't want to admit that I made a mistake. So I was drinking very heavily. Um, I had, the day before the breakdown, I went, I'll tell you what happened, I'll talk you through the day, because I remember. This was when I, when I said this to the psychiatrist when I was in hospital. This is when the penny dropped that I had a problem. Because loads of people had said to me, you've got an alcohol problem. And I'd say, don't be so absurd. I work, I can function, I can write better than you can. What are you talking about? So I went out, I went, I'd got into, into a stage where I was waiting for, Fiona has gone swimming every day of her life. And I was waiting for her to wake up in the morning She'd go out to swim, I'd go to the bathroom, and I'd throw up. And that would become every morning. I would then have a conversation... Penny didn't drop then, huh? No, not at all, because I felt better. Yeah. I felt better. And then I would go into, I would go to work, and I would be having a conversation inside my head. When, I, when can I legitimately have a drink? And I'd say, well, midday's okay. But actually, you get to 20 past 11, you think, well, it's nearly midday, that's fine. So you put your jacket on your desk, you go over to the pub, you have a few drinks. That day, I ended up, in the afternoon, I went out with a a minister called David Meller, Conservative government minister. And when when I saw the receipts afterwards, when we were kind of trying to piece together what had happened, we got through four bottles of wine at lunch, and I, I think he had about two glasses. I then went to a drinking club, I then went back to work for a couple of hours. I had a terrible row with Fiona on the phone. I slammed down the phone, said I wasn't going home. I booked into a hotel and I demolished the minibar. Next day, I had to go to Scotland with Neil Kinnock for a piece that I was putting together. And where was the first place we were going to when we got to Scotland? Gordon Brown's constituency. This is back in 1986, before Gordon's... You know, what it, was he, what it became, yeah. Yes. Would you believe that the actual calamity of the breakdown began as we were visiting a nuclear base? It's not a good place to have a breakdown. I, At least you weren't in charge. Oh, my God, honestly. It was just, I, I had a hire car. I was driving around this roundabout. I must have driven it around a hundred times. I couldn't get off the roundabout. Round and round and round and round. I was I was starting to hear voices. I was starting to hear music. I dumped the car. I phoned, I phoned my office. I said, I've left this car in the car park of a nuclear base. I've given the keys to a guy called Sammy. Deal with it. Put the phone down. 
got now I'm I've lost Neil, I've lost Gordon, they've they've moved on. I get a cab to Perth, which is about I don't know, long way away. Uh by now I'm really I can feel I'm really, really not well. I ended up catching them up. I was in a council building and I went I was starting to feel so odd that I tr- I think I've got a phone home, I've got a so I, I said to this guy, can you tell me where I can use a telephone? This is pre-mobile phones. He said, yeah, come into this office. I go into this office, pick up the phone. I phone Fiona, no reply. That's strange. I phone my mum, no reply. I phone my brother, no reply. I phone my friend, no reply. I phone all, all the numbers I can remember in my head, I phone them. Nobody's in. Of course, it was an office. Every time I was hitting zero to dial the first number, I was going through to the operator. It was a Friday night. Nobody was on. So I'm just hearing these. <laughs> so now I'm really spiralling out of control. I walk down these stairs. Don't ask me why, but I start to empty my pockets on the floor. I start, to, I had a bag with me. I start to divest myself. And I think what I was doing, by now I think that I'm, I'm, being, tr- I'm being tested. And if I fail the test, I'm going to die. That's what I think. I put everything in all the possessions on the floor. And then at this point, because Neil Kennett's now on the other side of the building, he's making a speech. And it was the weekend that Olaf Palmer... Was he the, was he the leader? He was the leader of the Labour Party. Leader of the Labour Party. But it was the weekend that Olaf Palmer, the Swedish Prime Minister, was assassinated. So there was quite a lot of security around Neil. There was a sort of sudden upping of security around left-wing leaders. And um, next thing I know, two special branch guys came over. And one of them just said to me, Are you OK? And I said, I don't think I am, now." And he said, do you think you should come with us? And I said, I think I should. And I went off with them. They took me to the police station. I was in a cell. I took all my clothes off. I started banging the wall. Eventually they got a doctor in. Patricia Hewitt, who later was a cabinet minister, then Neil's press secretary, she then realised I'd vanished. They'd been worried about me all day. She... F- she phoned, she, hunch, she phoned the police. Do you know, we're trying to find this guy, Alice Campbell, da, 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 he's a journalist. Da, da. So she said to them, look, he is who he says he is. So, but they'd only let me go if I went to hospital. And I went to hospital and then pff, sedated and all that stuff. And that started a lifelong kind of uh, effort, I guess you would call it, to, to, to deal with these forces in yourself and so on. Well, you know what? They, they, they told me to stop drinking, which I did. And that wasn't easy. But I went 13 years without a drink, uh, without any drink at all. I, I, have the occasional, I have the occasional drink now. But the thing is that I, was really, I got really angry because I stopped drinking, which I thought was going to be... That was then I was going to be fine. But then, of course... The depressions were still there. And, you know, I could go long periods without them, but then suddenly they'd hit and I'd be, I'd be on the floor. Um, absolutely on the floor. So how did you emerge from all of that to... I mean, this was in a, prior to your whole life in, in public life. You ended up being the principal strategist, a, a message strategist for Tony Blair, a towering figure in, in British political history... Um, how did you get from there? Well, I went back to journalism. I went back to the Mirror. And Richard, my old editor, wisely, I think, he said, you're going to have to start at the bottom again. I was doing the Night Watch reporter. My very first job, when I was back, I actually had to phone a friend to file for me because I had a panic attack. It was a terrorist thing at Heathrow Airport, and I had a panic attack. And I phoned my friend, Sid Young, guy down in Bristol. I said, Sid, I'm first day back. I can't do it. And I don't want them to know. And you know what journalists are like. When yeah. they're friends, they're great. Right. He did it for me. Filed him, you know, helped me file it. And so, but I just built myself. Day by day, I got stronger. And then I started to want to get back into the political beat. I became political correspondent, then political editor. Got, my, got a column. I was the chief leader writer. Um, and and then when John Smith died, and then I started to have a bit of a 
a broadcast career as well. I was doing things on the BBC. I was I, I had a slot, regular slot reviewing the newspapers. And one morning when I was reviewing the newspapers, I used to get driven to the BBC, do this thing, and then get driven to the office. And I'm driving to the office, phone goes, and it's Hilary Kaufman, who was John Smith, Tony's predecessor as Labour leader, his spokesman. She said, um, have you heard about John? I said, no, what? She said, well, he's not well. And they knew that I'd get asked to do a lot of media, and, and I could tell by the tone of her voice he was probably dead. And so it was the most extraordinary thing. And every time I go by the Marylebone... The, the the west on the Westway where every time I go there I think of this because it was one of those moments in your life I knew Tony Blair was going to be the leader and I knew I'd work for him even though we never discussed it Tony didn't ask me straight away um, but he did eventually and I said no partly to be honest because I had had the breakdown partly because and he knew that too he knew that he knew that. Partly also because Fiona didn't want me to do it. My parents didn't want me to do it. We had kids now. We just had our third daughter, third child had just been born, a baby. So two young boys and a, and a daughter. And anyway, Tony has got very, very fine instincts. So I went, he, he sort of badgered me for a while. And we were coming up to the summer holiday. He's now leader. Coming up to the summer holiday and, and he, he asked me to go and see him. And, and he, he really turned on the whole kind of charm and the rest of it. And he said, Look, I really want you to do this. I don't want you just to be a spokesman. I don't, there aren't many people who've got a strategic mind. I think you've got a strategic mind. I really want you to be part of it. Da, da, da. I said, well, look, you know the score. I'm worried about my past. I'm worried about things I've done in my past that are going to become newsworthy, but, you know, be embarrassing for you. I'm worried about Fiona. I'm worried about the family. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take a month. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm... Don't badger me, because that's what I'm going to do. So I went on holiday. Were, were you worried about your own capacity to handle the yeah. pressures associated? Yeah. I mean, I had a breakdown. I'd, I'd, I'd had a complete psychotic collapse. I'd, and So anyway, we went on holiday, and we used to go on holiday with the Kinnicks. Neil and Glenis and Fiona were all united in thinking, I shouldn't do it. Okay? So the whole holiday. Tony had an instinct. So he phones me up and he said, um, listen, we're only a couple of hundred miles away. I think, we, should we pop just, over? Just a couple of hundred just, miles should away. Should we just huh? pop over? Yes. So he came over and I'll never forget this. I wrote this in my diaries. I don't think Cherie's forgiven me. But they, they came and she was carrying a black dustbin liner with clothes and some raw carrots at the bottom. I've never understood what the carrots were for. So I've got Neil and Glennis and Fiona in one room trying to talk me out of it. And I've got Tony and Cherie in the other. Neil being the former leader. Huh? Neil being the former leader, yeah. And this went on for a few days. And then one, uh, and the mother-in-law, Tony's mother-in-law. must have gone through all the carrots, huh? <laughs> Tony's mother-in-law was there. She had to go back home. So I, I was just wanted to get away. I said, I'll drive you to the airport. Tony said, I'll come too. And on the way back from the airport, I thought, right, by now I've kind of decided I'm going to do it. Okay. But I said to him, listen... I know you know I had a breakdown. I know you know that I've had a drink problem. I know you know that I get depression. But I really need to tell you. So I told him in even more grisly graphic detail than I just told you about what happened, about what was going on inside my head, about how difficult it was, about having to take medication, about, you know, da, 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 about stuff that I'd done in my past that, you know, when I was a journalist, nobody cared. But the minute I became Tony Blair's right-hand man, Old stuff became newsworthy. And did it become newsworthy? Yeah, day one. I'd written pornography, um, fights, uh, things I'd said when I'd been drunk, just, you know. But he didn't mind. And I think that, and when I, when I became an ambassador for the Time to Change campaign, which is all about trying to change attitudes to mental illness, they did a, they did a poster campaign on the Metro, on the Tube. Um, and it was just the exchange that Tony and I had that I'd talked about in an interview where. I said, look, you know about my breakdown. You know about the drink problem. And Tony said, I'm not bothered if you're not bothered. And I said, what if I'm bothered? And he said, I'm still not bothered. That was a poster. Yeah, yeah. So that exchange was a poster. How did you feel about that? Good, good. Because I feel, 
I've never, it's interesting when you talk about stigma, I've met so many people for whom the stigma is often worse than the symptoms. Yeah. But I don't know why, but I, ne- I never felt it personally. I actually, once I got through my breakdown, once I rebuilt, once I got to that phase where every day I was feeling a bit stronger, I actually started to say to myself, this is the best thing that you've ever done. You should be really proud of how you've come through this. And so, and then the other thing that happened, when the, when the media first started to phone me and say, we're writing a piece about your breakdown, we're writing a piece about what you used to do when you were drunk, and I could have done, and it was one of those moments where it was an instinctive judgment. I could, and part of my mind was thinking, just tell them to F, right. off, F off. And this the is a podcast, you can say whatever you want. Okay, yeah. just fuck off and leave me alone. This mm-hmm. is the past, it's got nothing to do with you, it's got nothing to do with what I do now. I could have done that, but my instinct was just talk about it. And I've, and I've done that ever since. Yeah, I admire you for it. You know, you and I have talked about this. I had a father who committed yeah. suicide, and I didn't talk about it for 30 years. Mm. And I, it took me a while to come to grips with why I didn't want to talk about it. And I didn't want to talk about it because I was embarrassed, and I thought it might sully his memory if I talked about it. Yeah. And I realized that was exactly why he never went to get help. Yeah. And so I uh, wrote a piece about it, and the reaction to that was stronger than anything I've ever done. And I imagine that you being as public about your struggles uh, was uh, encouraging the people who were going through some of the same problems. Oh, yeah. I mean, I get... I'll tell you the other thing, but I mean, as you know from having been in London and seen how our press operate, I get a lot of bad press still. But in this area, the media's been good. Mm -hmm. And that's because I think there is a... Everybody knows somebody who's had a breakdown. Everybody knows somebody's got a drink problem. Everybody knows somebody's got depression or bipolar or schizophrenia, whatever it might be. And I just, I think I just reached a point of thinking, if you've been through that experience and you're not ashamed of it, which I'm not, and you feel that it has made you stronger, which it has, and you feel that you can help other people and you can change attitudes, then I think you have a responsibility to do it. And I get, I get messages from people literally, literally every day, every day. I get people, I call them the whisperers. You know, you'll do a talk, I'll do a talk, and then there'll be a Q&A, and you'll talk about this, that, and the other, and Blair, and Bush, and the Queen, and, you know, politics, and blah, 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 blah. And at the end, you know, well, you've done these things, you get yes. people come up and they want to sign a book, or right. just have a picture, or a chat, or whatever. And I can always spot these people coming a mile off, and I call them the whisperers. There'll be a little queue left at the end, and they'll come up and they'll just come up and they'll tap me and they'll say, thanks for talking about mental health. Uh-huh. And I'll say, why are you whispering? <laughs> Because you don't need to whisper. Uh-huh. And, I, and I'll say, why are you whispering? And she said, oh, well, I've got a dad, I've got a mum, I've got a brother, I've got a sister, I've got a boyfriend. You know, they don't want to talk about it. Right. And I say, and I'll just say, talk about it. Right. And I'll tell you the other thing, in, in, in government, I mean, you know this as well as I do. I mean, at the moment, you take the National Health Service in the UK, the government austerity and all that, massive pressure on spending. Because of the stigma... Mental health services go the to the first, bottom the first every thing that time. Gets, first thing that gets assaulted. Not cancer. It used to be cancer. Yeah. The big C. Nobody could talk about cancer. So I just think... And the other thing to say is I think it is changing. I do think attitudes are changing. Politicians in the UK now feel they have to say there must be parity of esteem and understanding between health and mental and physical health. It's not happening, but they feel they have to say it. Well, that's a start. Yeah. Well, I really admire you for, for your, your great role model. And you still struggle with these things. Uh, well, I've, I've actually, I'm quite lucky because I've, I've, after years and years and years and years, the other thing, I suppose this is where I was the victim of stigma. When I was in Downing Street, I didn't see a psychiatrist. I saw, I saw my doctor. I had a GP, a general practitioner. He kept my notes in a safe in his house because he was convinced the press were trying to get hold of them. And... I didn't see a psychiatrist. I've seen a psychiatrist a lot since I left, and I've now found various medication, exercise, really important, and ways of dealing with it mm-hmm. that mean that I haven't touched wood had a really bad bout for probably a few months. I, uh, I must say that having served in the White House, I would, I think, every every senior official in government should go and find a therapist because the pressures well, that you face. Certainly, whether it's a therapist or it's... I mean, I see a guy now who's a sports psychologist 
Um, and I met him. I met him actually through writing about sport for the book. And I now use him because he's brilliant at preparing to deal with high pressure moments. He's actually the. And he's taken a minute off your mile too. No. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask you. Uh, uh, I want to get into your book. I want to ask you about Tony Blair. The, hmm. uh, uh, it says something about him that he embraced you as he did, uh, and recognized you for the talent that you are. Um, talk about his talent. Talk. You you've just written a book about that's essentially about leadership. Uh, the title the title is. Uh, 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 winners and how they succeed, but it's really about leadership in many ways. Tell me, and obviously Tony Blair was a winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made him a winner, and how did you guys transform what was, in many ways, a moribund Labor Party uh, at the time that you you uh, w- that he took over as leader? Yeah, well, I, I first spotted. I was a journalist. Fiona's brother, Gavin, is a, a lawyer. And after the election in 83, Gavin said to me, watch out for this guy, Tony Blair. Really smart, really good guy, really clever, really funny. Knew him as a lawyer. Knew him as a lawyer, lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And so when a new parliament starts, the, when I was a political journalist, you used to just hang around just sure. the central lobby and see, yeah. try and recognise the new faces. And I, I actually don't have a good memory. It's one of the reasons I keep a diary. But I do remember my first meeting with Tony. He was wearing a truly hideous beige suit. He's always been bad at clothes. And he, and I promise you, within a minute of meeting, I introduced myself. And of course, the dynamic, I was political editor of the Daily Mirror. The dynamic, he was a young MP, is right. that he, he needed me more than I needed him kind of thing. Right. So he was kind of charming and nice and, you know. But within a minute, we were talking about the modernisation of the Labour Party. We need to do more. We need to go faster. And we just got on very, very well. Um, I was probably closer to Gordon at the start, though. Gordon Brown. Yeah, because Gordon was more... He was making more waves. He was creating more news. And like I said to you earlier, I used to help him write his column. But but Tony, I'll tell you what he had. What Tony always had was an ability to see beyond the bubble in which politics spends so much of his time. He was always, just had that reach out to the public. And it wasn't just about being a a good communicator. It was also about understanding the importance of... uh, Politics is about people. It's not about politicians. And I think too many politicians forget that. And So talk about, for one second, why is it that he emerged... Brown is a powerful intellect, mm. uh, really, uh, really manifestly so. Why did Tony Blair essentially eclipse him in the leadership of the Labour Party? I think people sensed that he had a broader appeal and that he had some of the... I remember my mother used to be, she died, she died a couple of years ago, but I remember she used to say, I think Gordon would have been a fantastic politician in the radio age. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he just Gordon didn't like the modern stuff. Tony, for Tony, it just came naturally. But you see, I think both Tony and Bill Clinton suffer partly for being such good communicators because people want to think that's what they are. But actually, Tony was always very, very good at forward thinking, strategy, very good at... I mean, in, in the book, I write about the, the Holy Trinity being strategy, leadership, and teamship. Yes. And strategy to me is the most important. I say it's God, and I think strategy is the most important thing. Leadership, obviously, is fundamental. But teamship, you know, you were part of Barack Obama's team. Barack Obama was, was a formidable candidate, but he couldn't do it on his own. Nelson Mandela was one of the most amazing people of our lifetime. But he needed people around him. And I think Tony had this ability, not just to get good people, and get very different people as well. If you, if you were... I used to... When we were in working with Ed Miliband at the last election, and I, I don't want this to sound boastful, but when I was comparing the teams, and, you know, whether it was Jonathan Powell, who was Tony's chief of staff, or... 
Peter Mandelson, Derry Irvin, Angie Hunter, Sally Morgan, Peter Hyman, I could go on and on, Andrew Adonis, Pat McFadden, David Miliband. You know, there were, there were people there. We were all very different. We were all, you know, we all had our egos and all the rest of it, but we really, really, really wanted to make it work for this guy. And that was, and I, I you know, sometimes when I did get very down, which I did, and I always felt that it was worth digging a bit deeper to try to do the job that I had to do to try and help him win. And um, and that's something, that's that's a leadership skill. It's about making people want to go that extra bit. Further. What about getting people to work together as a unit? And the teamship. You see, we had, when Tony left office... In 2007, he had a dinner at Checkers for the original 1994 team. And, okay, Peter and I had had a few fights along the way and a few big fallouts. And there were other people there that didn't get on maybe as well as they did. But we were still very, very close. And Jonathan Powell and I, for example. Jonathan was chief of staff. I was director of communications and strategy. We never had a crossword. I didn't want to do his job. He didn't want to do my job. Actually, one of the things I read in, I remember in David Pluff's book about your campaign, which I've quoted in, in mine, was that he talked about very early on Obama rewarding, not I mean rewarding as in money, but boosting people who had good ideas and they worked. But it all, but the sense of the team being really, well, the, really the, the, I can tell you that the first meeting we ever had Uh, he gave his three rules, uh, and the first was it was going to be a ground-up campaign because that was the only kind of campaign that could produce change. But the second was we're, we're, a, we're a team, we're mm. a unit, and we're going to rise and fall together. We're going to rely on each other because yeah. we believe in what we're doing. And anybody leaking or yeah. uh, uh, undermining other people, they're going to go yeah. because uh, we're, see, and we're I, a team. And I, th I think, I've said, I've said in the book that I think that when it came to the whole new labor thing, I mean, people forget, we won a third election after Iraq. We, I don't think we lost in the end, in 2010 and beyond, because of policy or because the Conservatives had a better positioning or beliefs. We lost because of failures of teamship. The Tony Gordon thing became untenable. I'm afraid I think Gordon did have a... Uh, he was Chancellor of the he Exchequer. Was, he, he was Chancellor who wanted to be Prime Minister, which is a perfectly noble thing to want to be. But for large parts, it rendered the government dysfunctional. And that's a failure of teamship. But let me ask you about the Iraq question, because American, uh, Americans will be interested in this. That, that seems to be um, uh, a demerit in the minds of a lot of folks in Britain, that Blair was so uh, supportive of George W. Bush and the Iraq mm. policy. Uh, was that a mistake? Uh, well, look, if you look at... Go back to 2003 and what we were saying about what we hoped Iraq would become and look at Iraq now and can anybody be happy with the way that's panned out? Of course not. But the reason why I still defend Tony over it is because so much of the history on it has been rewritten. Tony... Yes, there were points where he said for us to break from the United States on a fundamental uh, issue of foreign policy is a very, very big thing to do. But he did, all, he did believe it was the right thing, regardless of that relationship, because he was and still is worried that the real threat facing the world is this notion of a rogue state capable of producing weapons of mass destruction that fall into the hands of terrorist organizations who did the kind of thing that started, that led to the war in Afghanistan and I guess ultimately to the war in Iraq, namely 9-11. And that was, that was the frame. And he believed that they had them. So did I. Mm -hmm. So did I. Based on the stuff that he was seeing every day, which we also knew that the French president was seeing. And Now, were there times, were there times when, and this, is, this has been recorded because everything any of us have ever said about this, we've had to put out into inquiries and I had to hand over my diaries and so there were times when I think some of us felt a little bit uncomfortable that less Bush actually but Cheney and Rumsfeld in particular were 
just pushing this so hard and and but you see t- Tony I remember the once he was having a conversation with Jack Straw who was the foreign secretary at the time and Jack was making the point look these guys will understand if they have to go it alone because they were going to do it and and Tony says Jack you've just got to understand I believe in this I think this is what we should be doing so and your word demerit yes there's no doubt that people hold that against him you still it's funny you still do meet people who support him um but it's there's no doubt that it's uh, it's it's one of the reasons why in a matter of 8 years he's he's gone from a position where he was the first prime minister ever to get a standing ovation in the house of commons as he left it to now in the recent labor leadership election whenever he made an intervention it was deemed to help jeremy corbyn that's sad. jeremy corbyn the new <coughs> the new labor very leader. yeah yeah quite left yeah yeah, Left of Bernie. Yeah. Uh, I want to. I want to get into that in a, in a second. Um, but um, on the book, um, the book is called Winning Winners. Winners. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. But the uh, uh, in this is the reason I, I made the tran- transition there the, or the mistake is that I am thinking about politics and how much winning should be prized uh, because it's easy in politics. And this is what I've always been confronted with. All of us in politics are we have access to polling. We have access to research. It's here's where the public is. If you take this position, you have a better chance to win. What if... uh, where do you draw the line and say, well, that may be the best way to win, but I don't think that's the right thing for the country. But I, you see, I, I it's think... It's different than sports. It is different. Of course it's different. I mean, I think there are... I have to say, I think there are similarities. And I also think there are things that politics can learn from sport. Sport uses data better than politics does. Yeah. Sport, the best of... Billy Bean, Formula One, the top cycling guys, these guys use data way better than we do. Because they use it to drive innovation. We tend to use data to, for confirmation bias. Um, I think getting the balance right between data and instinct is... is but you see, the thing what is... What about principle? Hugely important. And you see, I think that we got this reputation for the polls and spin and, 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 and what have you. But we've just been talking about Iraq. It's a very good example of where... Look, Tony knew it was incredibly unpopular. He's sitting in his house in Downing Street, sitting in his flat. You're looking at a million British people out on a march. And I have a golden rule. So he took that as a hint, huh? He knew. <laughs> and I have a golden rule yeah. that if, if there's one person on a march, probably 20 thought about going. So he knew. So I, and I think even on... Um, we were not actually poll-led. Way less than other politicians I've seen. But I, I'm, not, I'm not asking this in the context of Blair. I'm asking this really in a... You know, we just saw, for example, uh, here in the American race, uh, Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State, was very bullish on this yeah. uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, announced that she now is against it. And it's it's not popular. And Bernie Sanders, who's running against yeah. it, is strongly uh, opposed to it. And the supposition is, uh, obviously, she put it in the context of policy, but the supposition was this was a political yeah. uh, decision. How? Where do you where do you draw the line here? I you see I, I, what I, what I say in the book about political strategy. I think in any big thing you have to be very clear about your objective, and wanting to win in politics that is a totally justified noble objective. The strategy is the hard bit, and that is where you have to be really clear about what it is that you're trying to do, and the tactics should always come below those two. And I think the pressures of the modern age, 24-7 news, social media, the noise, the volume of noise around politics all the time, I think it makes politicians far too tactical. And Is this why people are so hungry for authenticity? Yeah. And it's so Jeremy Corbyn, who I think is not the right leader for the Labour Party, and I think will really struggle to connect with the British, British public, but he captured this sense of be, people just wanting something different. 
I mean, Donald Trump, I think the idea of Donald Trump even being the nominee, let alone becoming president, is bad for America. But he's tapping into that sense of, we want something different. How's it being processed, by the way, in Europe? Uh, well, the Trump thing? Yes. Uh, I guess just a slightly downscale version of how it's been here. I think that certainly in the context of the UK, because Jeremy Corbyn was on the rise, Bernie, Bernie Sanders and Trump are both seen as part of this rise of, as you say, the authentic See, I have, I, have a, I, was, I wanted to ask you, when, uh, earlier this year when the race was going on in, in Britain, we saw really last summer the rise of Nigel Farage and UKIP yeah. for a while. Uh, he was in many ways uh, preaching the same yeah. uh, platform as Trump, nativism, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 nationalism, anti-trade, anti-immigrant. Uh, and I, I think it's not a coincidence uh, that this is a kind of a consequence of the modern economy. There's yeah. an opening yeah. for Definitely. kind of demagogic appeals. Well, especially in, especially in, in Europe, where where there's been, you know, look at it. You every night you sit on the news and these pictures of migrants coming in, and you have prime ministers like David Cameron talk about them swarming across Europe, and you know it's an easy platform for a right wing demagogue. But I think that the what's interesting about Farage is ultimately he, he collapsed. Yeah, he didn't break through. Yes, and that's because I think the public they take a judgment over time. And of course, in your politics, which is so brutal and so tough and, and so, so long, long, yes, then I I can't see Trump. No, I, I look. I've said that. repeatedly. I said you know uh, these things go in phases. He did well in the. He's a, you know a impresario of beauty contests. He's done well in the swimsuit competition. Mm. When the talent rounds come, it can be more difficult. Yeah. And I think as you get closer to the election, people look for more solidity, more mm. sobriety. I'll tell you what I am a little bit worried about. I mean, I've only been here a few days this time, but I don't get the sense that America, America, many Americans, take into account the fact that this election matters way beyond America. And it, it feels quite domestic, whereas actually you're talking about a position of global leadership. So if you look at, if you look at the, the Republican side, for example, whether it's um, the doctor or it's the Hewlett-Packard yeah. Hewlett lady who screwed up there, or it's Trump, all three of them, no real experience of, of office at all. It's quite scary. You look at polling in uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, being an outsider is is very much valued among yeah. the candidates. It's less in the Democratic Party. Less because much they do this anti politics, anti government thing the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. I think you see, if, when I look at them all, if I look at if I look at Hillary, I can imagine Hillary as a president. Funny enough, I saw I was on Morning Joe this morning, and and and, and Bernie had been on before, so I was watching him quite closely and. I've, I was more impressed than I thought I was going to be by because he's got very clear, simple messages. He's got a nice manner. Yeah. But I can't see, just as I can't see Jeremy Corbyn, I can't see the British people, those who aren't in the bubble, going for Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not sure America's going to go for that. Let's just talk know. for one sec. You, you, you coined the phrase New Labour, and it was meant to be a line of demarcation with a Labour Party that people had felt had drift, drifted too far to the left. Uh, what 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 now for the Labour Party now that it's cast its lot firmly with Corbyn and what's the way forward there? Do you know? I mean, <laughs> for the first time in my life, I kind of I, I don't know. Um, I think it's I w I was genuinely taken aback. I'll tell you, it's funny. It's, well, funny. I'll tell you a story about the day after the, the, the election, May the 7th, and I can't you, I think you'd gone, and I was being dragged, as everybody was, into the media to talk about what it meant. If I was the first person on the BBC. This was after Ed Miliband's yeah, defeat. Yeah, after the defeat. So, and the morning after, before Ed had announced he was stepping down, but I knew that he was going to do that, I was dragged into a tent on College Green opposite the House of Parliament with two microphones just like this, and who, who was at the other microphone but Jeremy Corbyn? If I'd have said on air that day, Jeremy, I think you'll be the next leader, you know. 
he and everybody else would have thought I'd gone completely crazy again. <laughs> and but it happened, and so I've sort of I've I've lost my bearings, and I know I know get I know get. Um, Look, I, I was always seen as being to the left of Tony Blair, to the left of Peter Mandelson, and I, you know, and I am, um, but I'm, but I'm a loyal. I was, I was really driven first by winning and then by trying to, you know, do good things as a government. But I see, so Jeremy's one. I don't particularly want to slag him off or say some of the things I said before. He's, he's, he was elected, but I don't see. I just don't see where these people that we lost, yes, we're getting all these new activists back. Fine, that's great. And I love all the kind of new passion and the energy, and that's fantastic. But I spend a lot of time going around the country, and the sort of people I just bump into when I'm going to see my football team, or I'm soccer, by the way. Yes. I'm going to see my football team, Thank or you. I'm going to, or I'm going just to, in a queue at the cinema or whatever. And you just get people the whole time saying, what on earth have you done? Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Conservatives, not a particularly good Prime Minister, not a particularly good government in my view, Cameron's just made a speech just kind of trying to colonise the centre ground. Perfectly sensible politics, but we've kind of opened the door to that. So in your book, Winners uh, and How They Succeed, uh, you, the people you talk about in there in business and they're in uh, politics and they're in sports and they're across a whole range of uh, pursuits and fashion. Um, you say there are a fair few tortured souls in here, but that's partly what gives them their special hyper-achieving qualities, uh, which they put to greater use in their chosen field. Fear of failure, fear of not achieving. Definitely. I think, it's, I think the only person in the book who, because I asked a lot of them the same questions, the only person in the book who says he never thinks about losing is Mayweather. I would say a lot of the sports people, there's a soccer coach, Arsene Wenger, he says, every defeat leaves a scar on my soul. And you can see that when you see him on the touchline. He, he, he's not happy. Uh, and even if they score a goal, he's happy for a few seconds. And then he's on to the next worry. And I think, it, I think that actually that fear of failure... There's a wonderful, I know cricket is not a big thing in America, but there's a, a, a Pakistani fast bowler called Wazim Akram. And I said to him, again, the question I asked a lot of them, what's the thing that takes you from being really, really good at what you do to being the best, really great? He, he's one of the greatest bowlers ever. And he said, it's knowing the difference between wanting to win and will to win. Everybody wants to win. Will to win is what makes you do the things that drive you, the sacrifices, the diet, the sleep, the exercise, the, the not having a, a glass of wine with dinner, the, all the stuff you've got to do, the planning, the preparation, the innovation, the fear that you're going to get left behind. Yeah, when Obama ran for president or was thinking of running for president, I said, my fear for you is I think you're too normal. to run. I don't think you're pathological enough to run for president because I know these other people they'll drag themselves out of bed 20 hour days under every circumstance because they have to be president and they don't want to fail and he said you know I I, you're right I don't but he said but I'm very competitive and if Mm. I get in you know but I've never known him in all the years I've uh, worked with him to to be fearful of failure and that's allowed him to make decisions and not look back that's great but I I I, I just think it's very unusual I've never figured out why He's obviously got an equilibrium that's that's incredibly useful to him in what he does. But and see, Tony's like that. Tony Blair was like that, and, and also very very optimistic. But there were there were definitely points at which he and I and some of the other people around him, we would be pressing the fear buttons in each other. I'll give you an example where uh, I can remember several times Tony Blair saying to me, "If we don't sort this out, we're dead." Now, I, I wrote about that in the book in the context of Lance Armstrong, because Lance Armstrong, he said that one of the most, this is before he was kind of exposed yes. as, and, and finally, you know, his reputation really got trashed. But I'd interviewed him several times. And I said to him, when you were ill with cancer, were you scared? He said, yeah, I was scared. I said, and now here you are about to face Jan Ulrich in a bike race. This was for his fifth tour win. Are you scared of losing? He says, yeah. And I said, what's worse, 
losing a bike race or dying from cancer. He said, losing and dying is the same thing. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I heard. I uh, felt that in I campaigns. Heard, I heard Bill Clinton give a, a eulogy for Sergeant Shriver in which he said, the only thing worse than, losing, uh, than, than dying is losing an election. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was a really mean But I, BC, I've got to say, I mean, I was less emotionally involved in the last campaign. Um, but the three with Tony in particular, I've got to be honest, I used to make myself scared. I used to, we used to have, Philip Gould and I used to have meetings where we'd sit down and we'd say, right, if we were the Tories and we knew everything about us that we know, what would we do with it? And you can scare yourself. Yeah. You can you have scare to go yourself. through that exercise. Look, I think part of the job of being a strategist is to game out all those options. Absolutely. And part of the motivation is for the strategist to, to, you know, but the candidate, you know, in our case, Obama was the guy who picked us all up when we got knocked down. It, we, there was never, he, he was always recognized. But that's a, that's, a great, that's a great way to be. No, they're, they're all different. But you see, and Tony had that role. He could kind of keep us all up when we're down and sometimes it the other way around. But, you know, I've written the book about, we talked earlier about mental, mental health and mental illness. I think this thing about the extreme mind, I think a lot of extreme, look, Lincoln was depressive, Churchill was depressive, uh, Martin Luther King was bipolar. I think that the extreme mind can, is often driven by fear. And I've got to be honest, some of the best work that I ever did, whether it was strategizing or writing or speech writing whatever it might be some of the best stuff i ever did came when i was either exhausted or scared waking up in the middle of the night totally unable to sleep and just going out for a yeah, run i've been there going out for been a run yeah. and and you know ideas come into your head now some of them would be t- crap right but sometimes and that would be that would be right. because you were scared. Right. You're waking up because you were scared. Yeah. So it's really a question of how you channel that anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Before I let let you go, we're both sports nuts. That's one. Of, I think you call it sport. I call it sports. I call it sport. But uh, <laughs> I uh, I was and, and just last night I was uh, as we sit here I was in Pittsburgh uh, watching my Cubs play the. Not your uh, Cubs. The, the Pirates. They're, they're the my Cubs now because the they won, brother. Cubs. Now they're my Cubs. <laughs> But uh, uh, and I, they, they have this wonderful manager, Joe Madden, who's taken them from, you know, a very mediocre team to a potentially. He should a, be my next addition. I, I want to recommend that. Honestly, okay. it, he, he's an incredible. I've got, I've got Joe Torre. I've yeah, got, I was I've sitting be right behind him at the game last yeah? night. Yeah, Joe, he's, he's a really he, he's the real deal. Amazing guy. But so just give me. 60 seconds on what makes a great manager or coach in, in, in either sport or sports. You know what? A lot of them are the same qualities that makes good leaders in, in politics. They're strategic. My main profile in the book on strategy is Jose Mourinho, the manager of Chelsea. Now, he's actually going through a hard time at the moment, but he's very strategic. They, they set big goals. They work incredibly hard. They're obsessed and fascinated by the process. That's what makes them do it again and again and again and again. They innovate. That's what again another thing they do better than politics does. They innovate. They keep looking to the next thing. They're never happy with the last win. Jose Mourinho, one year when he won the champ the, the Premier League title, he got his medal, he threw it in the crowd. People thought it was showmanship, but actually he was saying, I'm on to the next thing. Dave Brailsford, who's the, the cycling coach who, who, who built the first ever British team to win the Tour de France, his team to this day will say, the guy didn't even let us celebrate. And the reason was we had the Olympics two weeks later. You're on to the next one. And I think the other thing is they're resilient. So the winner, there's a great quote from a, an athletics coach. He's an Irish guy who coaches the Kenyan athletics team called Colm O'Connell. And he says, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. Well, back to what we talked about New Labour, that's what we tried to do. That's what the New Democrats did in trying mm-hmm. to, you know, if you've been rejected, if the public are pushing you away, how do we get back? And so I, I, I say to people in business and politics, don't just enjoy sport. Don't just, 
sponsor it. Don't just get the gold medalists into the White House or the Elysee or the Downey Street because they've, you know, they've represented the country and done well. Go and look at why, how they do what they do. I've learned so much, even from Floyd Mayweather, who I know people may not like. But I tell you what, the way that guy prepares for a fight... 49 wins, no defeats. He's incredible. Well, listen, your book, uh, Winners and How They Succeed, is filled with interesting case studies, and uh, there's a lot to learn from it. You're in it. You're in it with a great quote, conventional wisdoms are almost always wrong. Yeah, those are the the words that I live by. Uh, but uh, Alistair Campbell's written uh, 10 other books as well. Every one of them is worth reading. And uh, I so appreciate being with you and your friendship. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to books uh, uh, 12 through 20. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.